Wonderful, everybody. My name's Rob. If you have your Bibles with you, uh, you can turn to Revelations 4 and 5. We'll be poking around in there and maybe have your finger in Romans uh, 1 and 2. We might hit some of those scriptures. Um, You can tell Christian computer programs because they take a Sabbath on Sunday morning, just like everybody else does too, so... We're grateful, and we're growing character. Did I get to hear a boo? Do not tempt me, sir. I have a mountain more of worse jokes than that. So you need to just humor me, and it'll, it'll go away. There you go. See, and now Tony laughing. That provokes me too. So it's a win-win situation for me and a lose-lose for you guys. All right. Um, so... Did anybody hear about how Winnipeg went to Code Orange this last week? And so they changed some rules and stuff. I just want to give you some thought background for me. I'm I'm living in this sense of just knowing that together church is uh, not promised to us. And you might remember for a couple weeks ago or last week, I was really encouraging the church to be connected to some kind of small group because it is totally possible for governments to decide that this isn't permissible anymore and us figuring out what we're going to do next. And so we just need to be prepared. And many of us, you know, we went through the summertime COVID and we did the, sometimes we just did family time and stuff like that, which is great. But I wonder if trying to do that twice is not going to be healthy for us and that we should actually be planning to persevere into Christian connection if the isolation gets foisted upon us again. Because now we know that this is a possibility. And as a recent local politician, I think rightly said, um, you know, you can go through something once, holding your breath and expecting it to get better, but then all of a sudden if it happens again, that's when you can... it's, It's the second kidney stone that really wears you down. Having one kidney stone, you can get through it. There's drugs for stuff. But the second kidney stone is the the one where you can just be too tired. And so for me, I just want to encourage the church to be seeking to make some kind of connection, to be having some kind of plan if all of a sudden this isn't your main connection point in a week so that you don't end up isolated because Christians don't do well on their own. That's why oppressive governments throw us in jail all by ourselves because it tends to slow us down a little bit. All right. But the part of my heart for this morning is just, I was thinking to myself, man, if this is the last face-to-face sermon I was going to get to do for a few months again, what would I want to preach? And so that's where this is coming from. And really what I wanted to talk about is just the, the glory of Jesus in his crucifixion again. And I'm piggybacking off of a few weeks ago, I had some one-off comment about heaven worshiping Jesus' death. And I've been thinking about that. So I want to just walk through Revelations 4 and 5 again. And what I want to advocate for us is, this: you know, we've been in this sermon series about emotions remastered and inviting God to be Lord of our emotions. And kind of the big idea that I'm pushing this morning is that the, the biggest emotion in heaven is worshiping Jesus for his sacrifice. Now, that is the big emotional atmosphere of heaven, so to speak, is people 
and the angels worshiping Christ for his cross. And if it's good enough for the four living creatures, it should be good enough for us. Amen? So I want to walk us through Revelations. I'm going to pray first. You guys can pray with me. Father, thank you so much for Christ. And Lord, I feel very unequal to this task. But I know that by your grace and the power of the Holy Spirit, you can help us catch a glimpse of unseen realities that the book of Revelation wants to give us pictures and symbols so that we can understand. And God, I pray that you would encourage us and strengthen us with eyes fixed on the sacrificed lamb who is the resurrected lion of Judah and that we would be strengthened in our inner man by grace through faith in the word of God. And Lord, whatever is coming down the pipe, you already know it. And Lord, may you provide for our every need so that we can grow and thrive as your church through it. And also help us be wise and not surprised. In Jesus' mighty name, I ask for these things. Amen. So John, in the book of Revelations, he's writing a letter to the church that is expecting to go through some severe persecutions. And if you know your New Testament history a little bit, you know that for the first few decades of the church, they they were growing like crazy and they had some minor persecutions, maybe localized persecutions in Jerusalem here, or Antioch there. Philippi blew up one time. All the Jews got kicked out of Rome one time during the New Testament time because of the Crestus riots, which probably had to do with Christians and Jews arguing about Jesus and them causing a hubbub. And Romans did not like hubbubs, and they had no problem dealing with hubbubs, and so they just kicked all the Jews out of Rome, which is kind of crazy, but you can read about that in Acts. But John was foreseeing a time in the near future where there was going to be widespread official persecution of the church by the Roman Empire which didn't happen during the writing of the New Testament. Right, Elmer? Am I, I think, okay, I'll let you think about that. As far as I, as I understand it, there was not... Elmer Chen over here, ladies and gentlemen. Local, local guy who I go to to second-guess myself. Widespread official persecution from the church, I think, started with the Emperor Nero, and it was coming on the horizon, but wasn't part of the writing of the New Testament. So John is trying to prepare the church for this. And the first couple chapters of the book of Revelations is Jesus prophetically addressing churches in these letters who are going to be experiencing this, pointing out where they're really weak and if and they're not going to kind of make it through if they don't shore up their theology and shore up their practices and get ready for what's coming down the pipe. And then after these, these letters to the churches, um, John starts sharing an apocalyptic vision of what's going on there. And I'm using those words specifically because an, an apocalypse is a writing style. It's where you're trying to communicate things by using symbols and pictures. And Revelation tells you that. Every once in a while it'll say, you know, the Lamb had seven eyes, which stands for the Holy Spirit. So every once in a while John will tell you, I'm being symbolic here. I'm trying to tell you stuff. And so he preps us to understand these things. Uh, So this is the background. And so what I want to do is I want to look at parts of chapter 4 and parts of chapter 5 and point some things out for us so that we can fix our eyes on the slain Christ. All right. 
So starting in chapter 4, John is... Why don't we just read it? You guys like Bible, right? You guys don't mind a little Bible? I was talking with the men's ministry yesterday morning, and I was just... I'd read about the secret church in China. Okay, so they, they, they've gone through lots together. And in their kind of underground seminaries, they would invite people from the West to come and teach to them. And they started complaining to the people who were sending them their seminary professors to go and teach to them because they'd say, these guys only, can only teach for like two hours and they're done. They're out. Send us people who can really teach. We want like a good eight hours out of each person per day that you send to us. And I look at that and I'm just like... Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That, that'd be some good Sunday church right there. You know, everyone's getting the Uber, Uber Eats and Skip the Dishes just delivered to their row. You know, Calvary Chapel, row three. We're going to need lunch and snack because he's just started. And it's two o'clock. So this is starting in chapter 4. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. And around the throne were twenty-four elders, and seated on these, sorry, were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments, with golden crowns on their head. Okay, quick, how I understand the symbolism here. By being in the Spirit, so you know it's a vision, it's a prophetic vision, he's called up into heaven, and he sees one seated on the throne, and this is a picture of God the Father, who sits in his place of authority. So he's seeing him as the one who is in authority, and underneath him is a sea of glass, and so the sea, which is usually a picture of chaos and disruption, remember in Genesis chapter 1, the waters are over the deep, it's chaos, but under the throne of God, it is glass, it is firm, it is held down and, and, and not roiling or boiling or anything like that. And over the throne is the rainbow, which is a symbol of God's peace over the earth and his covenant-keeping nature. And surrounding him are these 24 thrones with the 24 elders. And people discuss about what these can mean. But as far as I understand it, 24 is 2 times 12. And 12 is a symbolic uh, um, word, or sorry, symbolic number. 24 tribes of Israel ruling over Israel. 24 apostles under Jesus ruling over the church. So it's a symbol of all of the authority that God has invested in his people throughout the two ages of the old covenant and the new covenant. And you can tell there's authority because they have thrones and they have crowns. And so it's this picture. And from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumbles and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. So like I said about it being symbolic, he sees the torches and he interprets it as the seven spirits which is the Holy Spirit, seven being a symbolic number. And before the throne was a sea of glass like crystal. There you go. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, were four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. And the first living creature was like a lion, and the second living creature was like an ox, and the third living creature had the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them had six wings, and they're all full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, stop there. Okay, this is a weird picture, eh? 
living creatures, different faces, flying around, six wings, which is great for like World War I fighter plane, maybe, but it's still a bit weird for a living creature to have. Super symbolic picture. I'm not sure exactly what it means, but it seems to encompass all of God's created reality. His heavenly reality, like the angels and the archangels, Gabriel, Michael, as well as all of creation. Because there's beastly pictures in there. So, But these are at least the supernatural creatures, maybe standing in for all of the heavenly host. But it seems like maybe more going on there. And there is a bit of a supernaturalness of it. When, when the creatures are described as having eyes all around them, it has to do with like they can see everything and they're full of knowledge. And let's notice how they worship. We're talking about worship. Let's notice how they worship. This is what they say. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And so these four living creatures are worshiping God for his holiness and his lordship and his eternality. Okay, this is how the worship that we see in heaven starts. God is holy, holy, holy. He's supremely holy. He's totally holy. He's pure and faultless and good. And he's the Lord, so he's supreme and all-powerful. And he's been around forever. He's always existed. He's, he was and he is and he is to come. This is his godness. All-powerful holiness that's always being. And they worship him. And they worship him all the time. Night and day. Like the Chinese seminaries. They never stop worshiping. They never go to bed. It's never too late. It's never time for lunch. They just are worshiping God in his godness. Holy, 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 without blemish, without fault, having never sinned, having never had impure desire, having never done anything wrong or thought anything wrong or willed anything wrong or felt anything wrong. Pure holiness with total power forever and ever and ever. Amen. And that's their worship. And if that's all God was, he would be worthy of worship forever. Sometimes we can get into a what-have-you-done-for-me-lately attitude towards the Lord. God doesn't have to do anything for us ever, and he's still totally worthy of worship for his nature. He's the the holiest and the strongest and the ever-living one. Worship him now. He's worthy of it already. And then it says, And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, and they're always doing this, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who's seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. And by your will, they existed and were created. And so here's the four living creatures praising God for his holiness, might, and eternality. And here's the 24 elders representing like the authority of mankind and the people of God. And they worship a little bit different. They're worshiping him for creating all things. Worthy are you, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and are created. Do you see a little bit different? So first it's worshiping him for his godness, and second, worshiping him for creating everything, throwing the crowns. Throwing the crowns, it's a picture of like giving up what you own and giving up who you are and giving up what you deserve and giving up what you've accomplished and throwing it at God's feet, acknowledging that he has done it all. That's the picture of heavenly worship 
But then things are going to change. Then I saw in the right hand hand of him who's seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back and sealed with seven seals. And this scroll probably symbolizing God's purposes and wills in the world. And the scroll is bound up, it's sealed, it's constrained. And it's sealed up with seven seals, meaning like either complete sealing or a seal that demands perfection to break. And I saw a strong angel, sorry, uh, this is one of those ones, I'm not going to make it through the, the sermon, okay? So, you've been warned. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break the seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scrolls or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. The worship of heaven for God's holy godness and his creative power has, is now turned into loud weeping because of the unworthiness of the world. And this is where John is starting to draw in What we all know is true, the fallenness of the world and the sin of man. Because we were meant to be worthy. And we were made innocent and with the potential to be worthy as humanity, to serve God's purposes and to fulfill his will and to please him. But at this point in time, and this is kind of prophetically in time, there's nobody There's no angel in heaven, there's no man or woman on the earth, and there's no dead person who has maybe died after a good life before who is actually worthy to fulfill God's plans in the earth. And this speaks to our sinful nature, and this speaks to our fallen world, and this speaks to our broken creation. And John is wrecked. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll. And it's seven seals. And this is where you get hit with one of the great switcheroos of Scripture, because if you were told, don't worry, the lion has conquered... And you've heard it, the line of the tribe of Judah has conquered, and you are going to turn to look at this conquering lion who is worthy to open the scrolls of God's will for the world. What do you think you would see? And this is what John saw. It says, And behold the throne and the four living creatures, between the throne and the four living creatures, and among the elders I saw a lamb, standing as though it had been slain. I think the Greek word there is actually slaughtered. So standing like it had been cut to pieces as a sacrifice. And with seven horns, meaning perfect strength, and seven eyes, meaning which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the world, meaning that the Lamb is mighty and all-knowing. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who's seated on the throne. And he went 
And when he had taken the scroll, excuse me, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. This is what I mean by one of the great switcheroos of history. Okay, anybody following the playoffs in hockey? Just a couple, okay, good. Okay, I, I'm not, so I'm going to get this wrong. Who lost yesterday? Tampa Bay. Okay, so if you, if somebody posted on Facebook, Tampa Bay got slaughtered last night, who would start to rejoice if you were a Tampa Bay fan? No one, because you know that being slaughtered or slain is not a good thing. It's losing, it's failure, it's defeat. And here is the line of the tribe of Judah, Judah, that when you hear about him, but when you look, you see a lamb who was slaughtered, who is worthy because he's triumphed through being slaughtered. And here comes this new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. From every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. Every Christian is a Christian because of the blood. Because of the shed blood. There's there's no worthiness in here except by the blood. Being bought and ransomed by the blood. And so they sing because the the Lion of Judah was humble enough to be slain as a lamb. And by this shed blood to rescue a people for God. And this is where it gets a bit crazy. Because not only is the song changed in its focus. It's not just on the holiness of God. And it's not just on the works of the creator. And now it's on the lamb who suffered. But now it increases in magnitude. Because before it was just the living creatures and the elders. And they're singing this first song. But look what happens next. It says, Then I looked and I heard, the set, uh, heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads. And thousands of thousands. So these guys weren't saying anything before. I don't know. Maybe they didn't get the memo. Or they were COVID social distancing or something. But now they can't stay quiet. And they said with a loud voice. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power. And wealth. And wisdom. And might. And honor. And glory. And blessing. Is like doubled the list of worthy things. When the first time it was like three worthy things to give the Lord. Now it's six worthy things. That he's like. Even though it's impossible. He's increased in his worth. And it says, and I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea. We weren't talking about the sea before. And all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped, which is hard to do because they already had fallen down and worshipped. So this is their double fall down. There's lots of symbolism going on there, but I just... I want you to hear and see. This is on purpose. That scripture is trying to tell us that when Jesus died. Heaven's worship changed. When he died and rose again. The worship of heaven changed and intensified. 
and expanded and increased if that's possible. And everyone in heaven knows it. That the, the line of Judah should never have died. But because he chose to die, he only increased his worth and increased his power and increased his capacity and became more worthy. And they had to like get more <laughs> angels in on it. It's like the four living creatures. We got this handled, guys, when it was just holiness and creation. But when it became that the lamb was slain, they're like, get on in here, angels. We need, there's not enough of you. God, can you make some more angels so that you can begin to be wor- worshiped as you're worthy? We got to get some sinners in here. We got to go to all the nations. Israel ain't enough. Israel and some people who join Israel. They're not enough. We've got to get out there and get every tongue and every tribe to come and worthy this worship the worth of the slain lamb. And that's what happened in heaven. And that's what's still happening in heaven. The center point of the worship of God is the blood of Jesus shed for sinners. Like, and if it's good enough for them, it should be good enough for us. And if it inspires their worship for all eternity, it can inspire our worship for all eternity. And if it can fuel their hearts for all time, it can fuel our hearts for all time. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, sent into the world as a man to live a righteous life on behalf of his people and to die in the place of sinners on a criminal's cross and to be raised from the grave on the third day and to step out of there and to prove his to heaven is the bestest, best, best part of everything. And one of the best parts of being saved is that you get to see it and then get to get eternal life so you can worship it forever. That's the point of living forever. It's not golf. It's to see the Lamb with your living eyes. And to see his scars. Guys, I don't get this. When we think about dying and going to heaven, don't you think, it's going to be so great. I'm going to be young again. Goodbye wrinkles. I'm going to be able to just run and never get tired. I'll have my perfect body. The body I've always wanted, perfect body. And maybe you will get a perfect body, but Jesus didn't choose a perfect body. The king of kings kept the scars. He kept the scars because the scars are the most beautiful thing in heaven. A nail hole here, nail hole here, spear pierce on the side, holes in the ankles. We will not be able to look at it and stay on our on our feet for all eternity. That the God of the universe would die for me? That he would suffer pain? I don't even want to suffer pain. That he would be hung on wood till death? I don't want to die. (laughs) I wouldn't die for you guys. That's terrible. But ain't it true? We're afraid to even come to church. And Jesus spent every single day of his adult life knowing he was walking towards the cross. To ransom sinners for God. Praise Him. This is amazing. And don't we get distracted? Oh, man. 
You know what you're saying. <laughs> Reason number one, it is good for us to remember the cross as the focal point of all worship is because we forget our sin. Most Christians and much of the church have really forgotten how evil sin is against God. To despise his words and reject his word and not follow in his ways and abandon his will, that's what sin is. To look at Christ and go, eh. It's the exact opposite of heaven. To hear about Jesus and go, eh. You don't even have to kill anybody. You're already, my heart's already the opposite of heaven. And I had this great conversation with somebody this week. And I I told them this story of me getting saved again. And it was just such a great reminder because I got saved when I was 18. And so I remember not caring about Jesus. I remember him being nothing to me. I remember not liking hearing about him. And I, I had these Christian friends who were trying to talk to me about the gospel. I was interested in spiritual things. I really liked kung fu. And, uh, you know, the idea of doing a triple backflip and then throwing a fireball really appealed to me. Anybody? Somebody? No, just me. That's okay. I'm weird. You know it. And so I was studying Eastern religions, and I was into Taoism, and I was into Tai Chi. And then I found out that, you know, they, they, they're pantheists, which means everything is God. And so morally pantheists don't distinguish between good and evil because everything belongs to God somehow. And so you can't actually say anything is right and wrong because it's all God. That's the big idea. And I found that like an unacceptable worldview. Like there's nothing that's evil. Like there's nothing. So like child sex trafficking isn't evil. It just happens. And good parenting and child trafficking, are they all come from the same place? Like, really? Like, really? You'd say that? You'd think that? You'd live like that? Really? And for me, that was unacceptable. And so my problem was, though, is that I knew on the spectrum, if there is such a thing as evil, I was being convinced that I was more on the evil side of the spectrum than the good one. So what do you do? And so I was talking to my Christian friends about that, and they were telling me about the problem of sin and needing to be forgiven, and that a just God has to punish sin, and that there is such a thing as the wrath of God against sin. And I didn't like it. And I, and I think sometimes we know that people don't want to hear it, so we don't say it. We don't talk about the fact that God has wrath against sin. And if you read Romans, which I'll do, the scripture says that that wrath is being expressed right now. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that he's made. So they're without excuse. For although they knew God through his creation, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God with images resembling men and birds and animals and creeping things. And he goes on from there to talk about how the human predicament isn't just that we're broken and hurting, but that because we have rejected the knowledge of God, he has responded with wrath. 
You don't want to know me? Then don't know anything. You don't want to worship me? Then worship every stupid thing. That's how God has responded to human rebellion against God. And back then when I was 18, I didn't want to hear that. And nobody wants to hear that. And so sometimes we get too nice and we don't tell them the truth. But I needed to hear the truth. And though, even though my friends could tell I was not kind of wanting to bite the worm on that hook, I still knew I had a problem. And we all know there's a problem. Guys, we all know there's a problem. Nobody here thinks that this is paradise. Nobody goes on the news and says, perfect. The one thing we don't agree on is what the nature of the problem is and then how to fix it. And what God says is the nature of the problem is a human heart resisting God. That's what broke everything. The human heart, I don't want to trust and I don't want to believe and I don't want to obey and I don't want to follow. Just leave me alone. That killed everything. And I was there. I was on my ICQ. Anybody remember ICQ? It's, yeah, it's like texting, but for kids from the early 90s. And uh, I was on there going back and forth, and, and they were trying to be so nice. But the problem was that until, until I heard about the cross and that all my sin could be put away from me, from Christ, I was going to have problems trying to fix it on my own. And so I went away for the weekend. Somebody gave me a copy of C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, and I found out He's just talking about prayer, and he says in prayer, you know, you can get a new heart from Jesus where he'll take your heart away because that thing is messed up, and he'll give you himself. Not a new heart, like you plus one or you version 2.0, but God himself as your heart. And I was just like, that's what I want. That's what I want. I got down beside the bed and I knelt down and prayed because I probably saw it in a movie somewhere that you're supposed to do that. And I was just like, that's what I want. And it's been totally different since then. But I'm just telling that story because we also need to hear sometimes that people need to know that sin is the problem. Or else we won't understand why Jesus died. And if we don't understand why Jesus died, we won't worship like they worship in heaven. Because in heaven the angels know how holy God is. In heaven the angels know how terrible to Look at God and say, not worth it, not worthy is. They have spent all eternity singing the worth of God. And to hear that anyone could look at God and say, nah, they want to come down and beat us up. And he's no. And so when they see that God himself would come down in his son and suffer in our place for suffering and die where we should have died and be punished where we should have been punished and then to rise again to be the one who loves us forever, they can't stop worshiping the grace of the cross. And they can't stop naming that it's the blood that rescues people because it's the blood of Jesus that makes us pure. It's the blood of Jesus that forgives us. And it's the blood of Jesus that has bought people from every nation. It's the blood of Jesus that causes missions. There's people out there who haven't heard the gospel that Jesus bought with his blood, and it's our job to get them. We're God's 
Amazon delivery drivers. We're supposed to go pick up something and bring them home. But the blood, the blood shed on the cross is the, is, is the greatest joy of your life. Another reason why it's so important to worship the cross is that we won't understand the Christian life without it. Jesus Christ hanging on a cross, displaying the power of God. Nobody would think that. Jesus Christ crying out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Displaying the love of God. It doesn't make sense. And if we don't understand the cross, you know, what are we going to do with the weakness in our life? What are we going to do with the pains and sufferings in our life? What are we going to do with the hardships and the crosses God calls us to bear, except think that we're being rejected by God again? But unless you worship the Christ of the cross and you can think the best thing that happened was the suffering of God. My suffering comes from the same loving God and has the same power to be redeemed and bring good and be a part of God's good mission in the world. If we can't think that our pain and suffering can be the same kind of suffering that Christ had on the cross, which did good and was love and was powerful, what are we going to do with our suffering? Distrust God, attack each other, Declare things a failure? Be in despair? Isn't that what we do? With pains and sufferings? The Apostle Paul took it in a completely different direction. Because he was an apostle of the cross. He's having this problem in his church because his church has these super apostles there who make fun of him because of his weaknesses and say, if he were really apostle, he wouldn't be so scarred and so weak and so lame and so bent and so old and so bald or whatever it was. And so he says to them, I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. He really doesn't like boasting. I will go on to visions and revelations in the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. A charismatic dream. Whether in the body or out of the body. I don't know. It was so intense. He doesn't even know if he was actually there or not. God knows. And I know that this man who was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I'll boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. It was him, by the way. He's doing this word thing because it feels so uncomfortable for him to talk about how much power God is working through him that uh, he just wants to talk about his weaknesses. He says, though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I'd be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than what he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in my flesh, a messenger from Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. And three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. Who does that? Do you do that? I don't do that. That's why I'm so convicted. I'm hardly a Christian. 
and not a preacher of the cross of Christ. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest on me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. He is an apostle of the cross, worshiping the crucified Son of God. Maybe it's just me. I'm so ashamed of my weaknesses. I'm so discouraged by my calamities. I'm so disheartened by my powerlessness. It's because I don't know the cross. I don't understand the blood. I don't understand the worship of heaven. Because if I knew it, I would say weakness, yes. Persecutions, wonderful. Calamities, here comes Jesus. And I'd worship, and I'd worship the cross, and I'd worship the conundrum of God's weakness being God's power, and human suffering being human freedom. I'd understand. I don't get it yet. And I think a lot of us don't get it yet. Maybe it's just me. So I, I'm, I call myself and I call us to focus on the cross of Christ as a way of just being sane in this world. There's so much suffering to go through before Jesus returns. And it can all be the cross. It can all be the power of God in human weakness. It can all be the mission of God in human suffering. Which it is, by faith. When you see the cross. So this is what I want to do this morning. I I want to call us afresh. There are some people in this room, you still struggle so much with the sins of your past or the sins of your present. They're the biggest thing in your life, what you're doing or what you've done. And I want to tell you, in the name of the crucified Jesus, he boasts in how much forgiveness he gets to give you through the cross. Boast in your sinning that shows off the kindness and the grace and the mercy of God. His holiness satisfied on the cross for murderers and killers and for terrorists and for thieves and for angry people and for despairing people and sad people and for blaspheming people, all can come to the cross and be just as for else, except with more to worship about. With more to worship about. Put your heart on the cross. Believe him that if... Ah, i got to get into Romans. Guys, I, I shut my Bible. and no, I can't. Hear the word of God as he boasts in his love for sinners. 
Romans chapter 5. Because if you're like me, you, you still carry around like that you're mad at yourself or sad about yourself or just the enemy's just begging you down. And you need to hear about the power of the love of God for sinners. Romans 5 verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one would scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one might dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we're still sinners, that's his love, that's his love, that while we're still at the complete opposite end of the spectrum of goodness, while we rejected his holiness and we didn't want his word or his way and we denigrated his worth, that's when God gave his most precious, beautiful, holy, treasured son to be slaughtered for us. That's the love of God. So huge. Founded on grace and gift in our worst moment. For if while we were, since therefore, sorry, we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we save by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. Meaning what? If God died for us when we were sinners, how much more must he love us now that he's purified us by the blood of Jesus? How much more now that we've come to Christ and are washed in the blood must he want to be for us if he was for us when we were his enemies? How much more confident can we be in the forgiveness of God now that we have come and said, I believe in the cross, than if he still sought us out before we were saved? This is the logic of heaven and this is why the angels worship. This is their joy and their hope and their their praise that God could do this. So guys, let's come home to Jesus. What I'm not preaching here is now you have to be happy every day of your life. I can't do that. I can't be happy all the time. And I think sometimes we can start thinking, if I'm a Christian, I'm going to be happy every day. That's normal Christianity. It's not normal Christianity. You're going to have ups and downs. And some of the downs are going to feel so bad. And that's the cross. You're still forgiven. You're still loved. And God is doing something. Just like on the cross. But... Can we put our eyes on Jesus loving us enough to die for us on our worst day and give our hearts to him afresh and say, I want to serve you afresh and to remember that every single one of us who's saved by the blood of Jesus reminds us that there are other people who are also bought by the blood that we're meant to help get home by reaching out and speaking the gospel, and helping people understand the fallenness of the world, and the need for salvation, and to love people when they seem unlovable, and to seek people when they don't want to be sought, because Jesus bought them with his cross. Amen? You should sing. I'm going to pray. Actually, why don't we do something? We're going to do a weakness cast. Come on, everybody, stand up.
I bet we all have a sin or a weakness that we look to and say, this is the problem of my life. I think we should cast it on the cross. And if God can kill his son and save the world, then he can take our weaknesses and our sins and do something good with it. Amen? Amen, church? I know I talked a long time and you guys all got low oxygen levels in your blood because of it, but take a deep breath. Calamities, trials, persecutions, weaknesses, Paul boasting in them because he was expecting power to come in the midst of these things. So let's pick something. Somebody once came to the front to confess their sins to God at a church. Somebody came up and said, are you confessing your sin? And he said, I don't know what to confess. And she said, just pick something. And he was right. Let's take some time to cast something on the cross of Jesus that you think is impossible or too much, that God will turn it into glory. Amen? So let's just take a moment. We'll be quiet together. Then I'll pray over us. God, here we are, your people, standing in the midst of an invisible heaven that's worshiping the shed blood of Jesus. God, here we are casting onto you these things that maybe we have let become bigger than the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. God, we give you our stress in parenting and are feeling like we don't know what to do next. We give you our stress in working and feeling like we don't know what's going to happen next. Lord, we give you church weirdness. We give you COVID. We give you trials in the church. Lord, we give you theological questions. We give you feelings of insecurity and the pains in our minds and our stomachs from living in this fallen world. Lord, we give you our sicknesses. Lord, we give you the cost of having a concussion in your later teenage years, Lord, we give you all these things and look to you with hope that the grace and power of God is perfected in weakness. And I worship your shed blood, Jesus. I still, would you help each one of us here to see it and get it for your glory. Amen.